We have the great privilege this morning to continue our study in the book of 1 Peter. It's been a real joy to see Peter's personal willingness to unfold the the doctrine of God's sovereignty and that based on the foreknowledge of God the Father, He has caused us to be born again. Such clear terminology that only God and God alone could receive glory for. Uh, Really, this doctrine, the fact that God and God alone condescends to mankind, that He would reach out to man who could not reach up to Him, is potentially the most offensive of all doctrines in the Bible. Uh, It really, sadly, has resulted in immense division amongst believers, and yet it is an undeniable reality. As we look at the book of 1 Peter over the next several months, my hope is that you and I would grow deeply and firmly in our understanding of the distinction between the character of God and the character of man. Man plays no role in his resurrection. He has nothing to do with causing himself to be made alive when he himself is dead. Upon the moment of regeneration, he exhibits his gratitude and his humility from understanding to some degree with biblical and spirit-filled awareness of the fact that God is a God of grace. And this really is the message of the book of 1 Peter. As we've said over and over and over, one of the primary or one of the main sub-themes is the concept of suffering. But that suffering is not intended to be some sort of martyrdom that gains glory for man and that he looks good because he suffers. The suffering is ultimately intended to focus upon and look toward God's grace. The one who suffers with grace is the one who has received grace. The one who suffers and retaliates because of his suffering is the one who, at least in the moment, does not understand, appreciate, or have any interest in God's grace. So we talked lengthily last week from our text about the reality that the joy that springs from us is not something that we conjured up. It's not something that we work up. It is something that resides within us. It is obstructible, but it is not assailable. You cannot take it away. You can't kill it. You can only obscure it with wrong thinking with regard to what's going on in your life. According to 1 Peter 4, verse 19, we suffer because God has willed that we would suffer. And that is not because he somehow has a, an embittered spirit toward us or wants to maliciously cause us pain for no good reason, but that in that suffering we would rest not in temporal circumstances, but find our great joy in the permanent reality that God has caused some to be born again. And so our hope is rooted in that, even in our memory passage this morning. In this, what is Peter referring to there? He's referring to the fact that God, who is a God of foreknowledge, that he would have an intimate relationship with those whom he knew in eternity past and would cause them to be born again by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and bring about obedience in them to Jesus Christ. That's all terminology right out of where we've been in the Bible. So, as we look at this together, I want to point out that Peter closes this section, which is a doxology. It's a declaration of the greatness of God. It is his statement of praise, and here with a wondrous statement on the immense value of an unsearchable salvation. Peter closes that doxology, and he starts with these words, as to this salvation. So I want to read the text to you this morning, and then we'll pick up with that phrase. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, 
things into which angels long to look. Again, this phrase, as to this salvation. This salvation is the ultimate message of God's historical redemptive plan for His own glory. It is the doctrine of soteriology from the Greek term soterios. So when you've been through those studies with us, looking at those age-old standard Christian terms that so many people in Christendom today hear and say, well, what did you say? We're simply talking to you about basic Christian terminology when we use the word soteriology. And really, we want you to understand those terms, not so that other people would hear you use them and think, wow, he or she must be smart, but so that when you hear other people use them in Christian circles where faithfulness to the Scripture has been a long process, where there have been generations of faithfulness to the Word of God, and those terms are used naturally, you won't be caught off guard because you'll know what they mean. So that's really why we want to help you understand those terms. Soteriology, again, it's the doctrine of salvation. It really is a focus on the gospel, the single most important message of the Bible. It is the culmination of theology proper and anthropology. Theology proper, again, very simply, theos logos. When you talk about the word theology and someone says, well, I'm not a theologian, then I think it would be helpful at some point if you have the platform in that relationship to say that all the word theology means is the study of God. And so you are a theologian if you study the Word of God because your whole purpose is to understand the character of God. So when you hear the word theology, that's really what that means. And when we talk about theology proper, we're talking specifically about the study of the character of God. When you talk about theology in general, you're really talking about all Christian doctrine. Theology proper is specifically the study of the character of God. And as you know, from probably from some secular education experience, the term anthropology from anthropos simply means the study of man. I'll never forget the time I was at the zoo with my family. And there was a man taking notes in front of the monkey cage. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm taking a class in anthropology. So I'm studying monkeys. I didn't bother. <laughs> when we think of anthropology, we should think of that which comes from the Scripture. We want God's perspective on man, not man's perspective on man, because they are utterly and completely opposed to one another. So we want to think God's thoughts after him. So when we say that soteriology, the study of salvation, or the gospel, is the culmination of the great chasm between theology proper and anthropology, we're talking about the reality that God and man are at enmity with each other. There is a war going on between God and man, a war that man cannot win. And God will ultimately win, but in His great kindness and His grace, He has extended friendship to His enemy by crushing His Son and Isaiah 53 tells us that it pleased him to do so. God's word declares that he and mankind are in fact at enmity against each other. The doctrine of salvation displays friendship or reconciliation between the great king and his once enemies for whom he executed his son. This salvation is of such great value that Peter is compelled in this short passage to address three different categories of messengers and their handling of it. Those in the temporary office of Old Testament prophet, the broader category of evangelist, a permanent but earthly role, and then those in the eternal role of messenger or angel. These three categories of messengers that Peter mentions are mentioned so because of the great value of the message that they all look into, have looked into, have attempted to understand, and in some senses to communicate to others. One commentator points out that the agents engaged in the ministry of redemption are prophets from the beginning, evangelists in the fullness of time, angels throughout watching and inquiring, all alike overshadow and energized by the ever-present Spirit of Christ, all overshadowed and energized by 
the spirit of Christ in the delivery of the message, that they wouldn't be the focal point of the message. So often, many times, you'll receive or you'll, you'll hear a message from someone, and the messenger becomes the star of the message. This is not the role of the preacher to exalt himself, to draw attention to himself, but the role of the preacher, the one who proclaims the gospel, is to hide behind the message itself so that he becomes a non-issue and that the message itself is the issue. By the way, this is not a New Testament concept only. God has always been a God of salvation. So when Peter uses this phrase, as to this salvation, he's not talking about something new. This is a sad state of the modern Christian church that it's so very confused about this issue. Psalm 3, verse 8 declares salvation belongs to the Lord. This is well before the New Testament era. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? There was no dependence upon man to bring about his salvation, to somehow fulfill the law, to somehow earn his way into the kingdom because he was an Old Testament saint. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This is the Old Testament message that God pardons the willing spirit. God pardons the one who seeks pardoning. Jonah 2 verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. Let it be clear that salvation is not a new concept in the New Testament. It's the same message with greater and fuller revelation. That's the caveat. So when we talk about the limitations of the Old Testament saint, even the Old Testament prophet, we're not saying that they were limited in their ability to be saved, but limited in their understanding of how they were saved. Well, when we talk here about the fact that there are three different categories of messenger that are commissioned to proclaim this message of great salvation, we want to talk first about, number one, spirit-driven Old Testament prophets. Number one, spirit-driven Old Testament prophets. These were partially informed pre-messengers of the gospel, partially informed pre-messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, when we look at the greatness of this salvation, by the way, the writer of Hebrews calls it that, so great a salvation. It is a salvation of greatness, a salvation, as you know from looking at our text together last week, that leads to imminent joy. Joy that is manifest in great despair, great sadness, resulting in God's glory. So this message of greatness, this message of great salvation, first proclaimed, at least according to this text, by spirit-driven Old Testament prophets. Well, letter A, I'm going to give you three letters. Letter A, these spirit-driven Old Testament prophets spoke of grace for you. These Old Testament prophets spoke of grace for you. The text tells us that these prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Now, as you know, we've been over this time and time again. When we say you, ultimately we mean the original reader. It's not to say that he's not speaking to the modern day saint, to the present day Christian. He is. But certainly, when Peter spoke to the reader in this term, he was speaking to believers. Not everyone who reads the Bible is a believer. So we want to be very careful to say that this isn't a worldwide message given to everyone. In particular, those who are without Christ don't understand this message. They reject this message. They don't want this message. But for those who are in Christ, you can confidently say that spirit-driven Old Testament prophets spoke of grace for you. How about that? That's a tremendous reality that the grace of God, unmerited favor, that God in his kindness would grant love and 
kindness to you based on nothing you could have done or did do, but because He is a God of grace, He's extended to you His love via the substitutionary death of His Son and the sin-killing, death-conquering resurrection of His Son. Old Testament prophets also experienced the grace of God, as has every believer throughout human history. This is another common mistake in the Christian church. There are those who think that somehow grace was a brand new concept in the New Testament. How many times have you heard someone talk about, well, God's a God of grace now? He wasn't in the Old Testament. Friends, He's the same God Yesterday, today, and forever, He has always been a God of grace. No one has ever been saved apart from grace. The sad reality is that there are pseudo-Christian sects today who gather for the purpose of communicating the idea that one can earn favor with God by doing works. And so the statement then with great proclamation and great declaration is that he who says that salvation is by grace alone is anathema. This is the Roman Catholic organization in the year 1545 declaring at the Council of Trent that he who says that salvation is by grace is accursed. That is the position of the Catholic Church today. It hasn't changed. You say, but Are you saying Catholics can't be Christians? I didn't say anything like that. I'm telling you what the doctrinal position of the Catholic organization is, and it has never changed. And that's the foundational position. And that is utterly and completely opposed to the doctrine of grace, the doctrines of grace given to us in the Scripture, that salvation is by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift from God. There is the misconception that Old Testament saints were somehow saved by obedience to the law and New Testament saints saved by grace. This is a gross theological mistake and misunderstanding of God's character and man's condition. Since the fall of man under the federal headship of Adam, man has never had the capacity for full compliance to God's law and God has never granted salvation to anyone apart from His grace. It is salvation by grace. As Michael read to you this morning from Acts chapter 16, the statement is this, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That has always been true. It will forever be true inside human history. In Psalm 84 verse 11, we read, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in You. The Lord has always given grace to those who trust in Him. Psalm 116, verse 5, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. God doesn't somehow do away with His justice in granting grace. He has poured His justice out upon His innocent Son for those whom He would adopt as sons in their guilt, taking their guilt away, putting it on His Son, and giving His Son's innocence to them. That is an act of grace. No one has ever earned that. He is gracious, and He is yet righteous, and He is a God of compassion, and He always has been. In Exodus 22, verse 26, these interesting words... If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are set to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. So for the man who has been cheated by another man, God extends grace when that man genuinely cries out to God. You say, but I know people who are crying out to God and they aren't receiving grace. They're crying out to a false God. There is a misconception of the character of God. There is some distortion of who God is. And so there's a crying out to some Santa Claus figure under the name of Jesus in many places in our culture today. So this is why it is crucial that you and I get the character of God right. 
it's absolutely imperative that you and I as believers would accurately and honestly and faithfully and passionately represent the truth of God's character as he has displayed it in his word. Not based on someone's dream or someone's vision or something they saw in a movie or something that someone said to them, hey, God told me to tell you this, but what the scripture says, because we know we can trust it. We know that it is trustworthy. And so we look to God's character in the Scripture and we see that He not only is, but always has been a God of grace. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him, in front of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And as I mentioned earlier, he is unchanging. He is immutable. He does not mutate. He is unchanging. James 1, verse 17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You see, your shadow moves as you move. God has no shifting shadow shadow there's no changing in him he has always been a god of great and immeasurable grace there's an even greater problem in the minds of those who think that salvation was only ever available in the new testament era salvation has always been available to everyone who will repent of his sins and receive the gift of salvation by grace and not just old testament israel There are those who think that only Old Testament Israel was in the family of God. Isaiah 45, 22 says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God was not only the God of Old Testament national Israel. He was the God of every true Israelite who would cry out to Him based on His grace. Isaiah 52, verse 10, The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Revelation 5, verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then in Revelation 14, verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel, to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, such that when we read John 3.16, we have insight into what John is saying. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever might believe in Him might not perish but have eternal life. God has saved people throughout the world for all human history, and he continues to do so. Well, as you know, our text tells us that this is a grace that would come. They have prophesied to you of grace that would come, these Old Testament prophets. Hebrews 11 gives us a little insight into the dilemma that the Old Testament prophet would have experienced It says, and all these, you know Hebrews 11, what we refer to as the spiritual hall of fame, those who had been faithful before the time of Christ, and all these having gained approval through their faith, through their belief, not through their works, not through their conduct, not through their decision making, not through their choices, but through their belief. This is the idea. This is man's role did not receive what was promised. So they exercised faith and that which is promised to those who would exercise faith was not fully granted, not in the fullness that we experience it today, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. That they would not be made perfect. 
In other words, they wouldn't have maturity of understanding. They wouldn't have the fullness of knowledge of who the Savior would be. Certainly, Old Testament prophets spoke of the coming Messiah. They knew that there would be a Savior, but they were very, very confused, most of them. In fact, every record that we have available to us today shows that the Old Testament prophet, the Old Testament Jew, was very confused about what the New Testament Savior would look like. And of course, the record of the New Testament clears that up. Listen with me as I read Isaiah chapter 45, starting with verse 20. Isaiah 45, verse 20. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. This is a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah, that the Messiah would one day put all men to shame. This is why we sing in that wonderful song, Sing to Jesus, Lord of my shame, that he would in his lordship exhibit or expose the shame of my life, that he would take that shame on, according to Isaiah 53, with my sin, along with my guilt, and along with my punishment, that he would be the Lord of my shame, and one day he will bring all men to shame. The book of Philippians tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as I mentioned, this is a foreshadowing of that reality. That the coming Messiah would be declared as the one about whom they would say, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him. And all who were angry at him will be put to shame. And then the classic text that you are probably even already thinking of in Isaiah chapter 53 that looks forward not only to who Christ would be, but what he would undergo. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty. Have you ever seen a picture of an ugly Jesus? No. No. Because there is an intended misrepresentation of who he is so as to draw people to him in the flesh. The natural tendency is to be drawn to people who are of physical beauty. There is nothing of Jesus There was absolutely nothing in his person or his physical character that would have drawn anyone to him, according to this text. He was not of a stately form. Uh, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows. We get that terminology from here in that wonderful hymn, And Can It Be? Man of Sorrows. This is where we get this. It's right out of the Bible. He was acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. There's a sense in which there was nothing great about the man, Jesus the whole point in the incarnation that he became a man just as every man is a man and yet without sin it was not his humanity that drew people to him but friends mark it down in our day and age so much emphasis on the human person of jesus is intentionally distorted to make him a super guy to make him great in his humanity He made himself to be defenseless as a baby and grew up as a man. 
that in no way negates or de-emphasizes the majestic greatness of who he is as God. The reality is it shows the miraculous essence of the incarnation, that God would become a man in that we are men, and even that he would have no stately form about him, acquainted with grief. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. What have you heard last of an altar counselor who took someone through this passage? When someone came down to make some sort of decision for Jesus, when have you last heard of someone actually taking them to the Scripture to show the reconciliation that can and does take place with every single person who ever repents and believes in this truth? This was the foretelling of the Old Testament prophet who spoke of grace for you. That grace would be granted to those who would understand the true character of the person, Jesus Christ. This is a foretelling of that. Psalm 22, verse 1, another messianic text in the Old Testament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. As you know, these are the words that Jesus would speak as recorded in the the Gospels. 2 Corinthians 5 telling us these same things terms that Jesus in his incarnation in that he became man and divested himself of his deified prerogatives he didn't stop being God but for a time in history he set himself apart from his deified abilities and so he asks the question why and the Old Testament prophesied that he would Psalm 22, further, verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. This is a foretelling. The prophets recorded this. Jesus would come. And again, as I said, they had limited knowledge, limited awareness, but they knew. They knew. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O nations, with His people, for He will avenge the blood of His servants and will render vengeance on His adversaries and will atone for His land and His people. So again, this is grace that would come about which they didn't have fullness of understanding. They didn't know about the person Jesus. But clearly here in Deuteronomy, there is a speaking of the one who will atone for his people. They couldn't have known who that was. 
Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah wouldn't have known that he was speaking about the person, Jesus Christ. He only knew that a Savior would come, a Messiah would rescue his people. But he had no individual person in mind. He couldn't have. He had no awareness of what would take place on the cross other than what's recorded for us in chapter 53 of his record. Isaiah 9, foretelling the reality that the government would sit upon this child's shoulders He knew some of what was to come, but not all. In chapter 4 of the book of Luke, Jesus looks back to what we've just read in Isaiah 61, Luke 4, verse 16, and He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. And He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus proclaimed in that moment to be the Messiah of which Isaiah spoke and prophesied. So Isaiah couldn't have known all that would take place in the moment that Jesus would declare himself to be the Messiah, but he knew that he spoke of a coming Messiah. So again, letter A is that the Old Testament spirit-filled prophets spoke of grace for you. They spoke of the grace that would come in greater fullness. They experienced grace, but not to the degree that the New Testament saint would, and not to the degree that you and I would. Letter B, searched the gospel diligently. Letter A was spoke of grace for you. Letter B is searched the gospel diligently. Our text in 1 Peter 1 this morning goes on to tell us that these Old Testament prophets made careful searches and inquiries. These men were true scholars with no access to the internet for Google searches. They were really, truly diligent in the scrolls that recorded the character of God and the redemptive historical work of God, and they knew them well. Paul, as you know, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, was not only an intellect, but he himself would have been considered among the ranks of high-level scholarship as would have been the Old Testament prophets. Truly devoted to hard work, arduous study, hours upon hours upon hours of diligently working hard to understand this future grace, this grace that would come to those who would later read the text of Scripture. Verse 11 says, Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. There is much debate, and I don't know why, as to whether or not the Spirit of God indwelled the Old Testament saint He did. The Spirit of God indwelt Old Testament saint. You say, well, then what was Pentecost for? What took place at Pentecost was a greater fullness of awareness and activity of the Spirit of God in the New Testament saint. But every Old Testament saint experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And here is evidence of that. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He, the Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. For an excellent commentary on this, I want to turn to the book of Hebrews. And as you might guess, Hebrews chapter 9. And I just want to read the last few verses to get some scope of understanding of what was being foretold and that about which we have greater understanding today. Hebrews 9 and verse 24. 
For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. As the Old Testament saint searched the gospel diligently, as he searched the salvation, the things, which Peter refers to as things, which is a reference to the gospel, to salvation itself, they would have had in some eras an understanding, a foreshadowing of what was to come in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But they wouldn't have understood it with the grace that you and I have as fully as we do in the person and the work of the one to whom John looked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Old Testament sacrificial system, as we said, it's a, a type of what was to come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so this was a limited ability, as we called it earlier. It's an unsearchable salvation, not meaning that it can't be searched at all, but that it can't be searched out fully. You and I don't even have a fullness, an absolute, complete understanding of the doctrine of salvation. But we understand it to a greater degree because the culmination of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God with us, Emmanuel, that he would reside among us as a man and that we would be able to look back in history upon that reality. I mentioned to you earlier the faithfulness and the, the diligent study of Paul really as an unbeliever that he would have gained much benefit from as a believer in his efforts to study and know the Scripture well. One of the things that Paul asks for in a cold, dark cell room as he is dying and writing to the saints that he loved was his books. He wanted to know better what he needed to understand to rightly divide the Word of God even in his last and dying days. And this really is no different from who he had become as a faithful pastor. Colossians 1, verse 28, And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul is a throwback. He's retro to the Old Testament prophet who diligently sought the Scripture under the dominion of the Holy Spirit, not in his intellectual ability exclusively, but exercising the giftedness and the intellect and the talent that God had given him. But the real issue was that he was faithful. He was willing to engage with the Scripture under the dominion of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what the Old Testament prophet did. They searched the gospel diligently. They hungered to understand with greater depth what they could only understand with some degree, with some limited ability. And again, the terminology is so helpful for us. It says that they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time. They wanted to know who and when. They couldn't understand that with fullness. They couldn't have had really any awareness of the timing except that it was in the future. And the person, they couldn't know. Not on a personal level. It is stated here, then, that the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They knew that whoever He was, He would suffer for them. And their ministry, letter C, was served with humility. Served with humility. This is the lost art in the pastorate these days. I'm not saying there are no men who are humble. I'm saying that a man who does not give great reverence to the Word of God does silly and trite things in the pulpit in an effort to, to bring about comedic and 
lousy and sloppy humor for the sake of addressing the flesh and bringing about laughter and such a crass and God-dishonoring manner. He is not the person to whom God looks, according to Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, which tell us that God looks to the man who is humble and who trembles at the word of God. It is perplexing to me. It is perplexing to me that one could have any degree of understanding of what a man is called to in the pastorate and follow an arrogant man, a man who is full of himself. This was not the case with the Old Testament prophets. Verse 12 tells us, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things. Can you imagine? You walk into work tomorrow morning and your boss tells you, listen, I want you to understand, I expect you to work hard, but your ultimate reward is going to be given to someone else. The work that you are doing will not accomplish nearly for you what it will for those in the future. This is not to say that the Old Testament prophet didn't experience immense joy and gratitude and reward in his study of the Scripture. It is to say that his ultimate purpose was not to serve himself. His ultimate purpose was not to be called prophet. His ultimate purpose was not to draw attention to anything that he has done. It was an effort to serve those whom they would never even meet on this earth. Perhaps they will have the joy of interacting and fellowshipping and worshiping the Lord God in heaven with those whom they hadn't met but served in their diligence in the Word of God. We can hearken back to the faithfulness of many godly Old Testament saints, men and women. We can do the same throughout Christian history, throughout redemptive history. Look at the books that have been written by godly men and women who have faithfully displayed the true character of God, the true work of God, and we can glean from that. The question for you and me today, though, is what is that doing to us? What is the legacy in your life, in my life? Are we so concerned about what the world thinks? Are we so concerned about feeding the flesh? Are we so interested in providing an entertainment-based ministry that somehow people would think highly of us? Or on the other hand, it's got to be one or the other. It's not to say there's not some admixture of both in lots of ministries, but there has to be one primary purpose. It is either the fear of God or the fear of man. And to the degree that one fears God, he will not fear man. To the degree that he fears man, he will not fear God. It's no secret that the truths that we preach in our church are offensive. It's no mystery that when one hears a plain and simple declaration of the doctrines of God's sovereignty, that that's going to offend the human soul. But you and I have all been there. That offense must take place that man would bow his knee before the Lord rather than coming to the Lord with some declaration about his willingness to trust him in and of himself. This was not the mindset of the Old Testament prophet the Old Testament prophet in his faithfulness never made some declaration before the Lord that he deserved some kind of blessing because of his diligent efforts. It was always about those in the future understanding and depending upon a greater understanding of the greatness of God. The greatness of God. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Even in the Old Testament prophet's mind, he did not speak of himself as the ultimate authority, but the one who would come after him who would be a greater authority, a greater and, and fuller representation of the truth of God. And then in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. This really 
flows well together with Psalm 19, which speaks to us in a systematic theology with regard to the natural declaration of God before mankind, what we tend to refer to as general revelation, that all mankind has an awareness of the character of God. There is no atheist. There is the one who says he's an atheist, and he might be convincing to those who don't know what the Scripture says, but he cannot disbelieve that God exists. And that is because, according to Psalm 19 and according to Romans 1, God has written his character, he's written his existence in nature and even in man's heart. Well, here in Hebrews 1, we recognize the reality that God has not only spoken in natural revelation, but he has spoken through the prophets. This is the beginning of special revelation, specific revelation to those who can and do and will understand the Word of God. But then even more particular, special revelation is in the person of His Son. That He would communicate truth and characterize it in living color in the person of the second person of the Trinity who became man. This is again, special revelation given to us by the Lord, the beginning of which took place in the Old Testament prophet, but was given to us in a much fuller sense in the New Testament teacher, the New Testament evangelist or preacher or pastor, even with the apostles. But again, what the Old Testament prophet, the point of this portion of our text, is that the Old Testament prophet understood that he wasn't all he was cracked up to be. He wasn't like the Pharisee who went about looking for the temporal reward of being thought of as being religiously better than everyone else. It is said about those hypocrites, those Pharisees, that they received their reward when they convinced others that they were religiously great. And that was it. The genuine man of God is displayed in the character of the Old Testament prophet who served with humility. He was all about cultivating truth in other men. In the New Testament era, in in our age, it's about shepherding men to become shepherds of people that there would be a training process, that men would understand what a man's life is like, that he would acknowledge his weaknesses, that he would look forward to what the Lord would do through other men (laughs) and not ultimately want to be known for his legacy. But he wouldn't care about how he is known. He would simply want to be faithful to this ministry. And again, this is the characterization of the Old Testament prophet. Back to Isaiah 53 verse 4 surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him this is a humble prophet this is a man the man jesus christ who considered others to be more important than himself given to us in definition form in philippians chapter 2 well point number two point number two i've given you a a look at the spirit-driven old testament prophets now quickly number two the spirit-driven evangelists who proclaimed the gospel verse 12 continues on and says which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And you'll notice here that Peter is not specific about the deliverer or the messenger. I think that's interesting. He doesn't point to the apostles specifically. He doesn't point specifically to those who have the call of evangelism. Ultimately, every Christian has the call of evangelism. But here it says, which now have been announced to you, these things, right? The grace of God and salvation, which have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So again, spirit-filled evangelists. This may have been a cousin or a parent or a co-worker in your life. Maybe someone in your family, someone in your church as you were a child growing up. But this is what it looks like. It's in Romans 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And again, I want to proclaim with great clarity that this must be a matter of discussion in the evangelistic process. There has to be an awareness of what the gospel is. No one ever, ever got saved apart from a basic understanding of what the gospel is. This is not about making a decision. This is not about changing your life. This is not about asking Jesus to do something. It's not about asking Him into your heart. It is about receiving by grace the righteousness of God. That God would impute righteousness. That means that he declares a person to be legally righteous. That's the issue. And how does that happen? How does that happen? What is the vehicle? It's one vehicle and one alone. And it's belief. It is belief in the gospel. The just shall live by faith. And this message, interestingly, is most offensive Why would someone want to have a higher expectation than simply believing in truth? Pride. Pride. Somehow, I get credit for something I did. That's all it could be. But if, on the other hand, it is simply a matter of believing truth, one and one alone gets the credit. Only God can get the credit. And by the way, Philippians 1.29 says that He grants that belief. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You see that? There was a delivery of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2 that it pleased him to impart his life, him and Silas and Timothy. It pleased him to impart their lives. But not only the gospel, but their lives. There must be a a full living color display of what the gospel is so as to gain credibility to communicate the gospel. This is every, every record that you see in the New Testament where there is a delivery of the gospel resulting in the salvation of someone. There was the building of a relationship. There was trust being built. Credibility was established. It didn't take six months or two years in every case, but in some cases it did. In some cases that credibility was established quickly. But there's always a willingness to communicate the gospel with one's life as well as with one's words. Point number three, angels ponder the gospel. Angels ponder the gospel. Peter tells us here that these things, the things of grace, salvation by grace, are things into which angels long to look. This word translated as long, to long, is to look into with much intensity or craving. This longing must, according to Wayne Grudem, include a holy curiosity to watch and delight in the glories of Christ's kingdom as they find ever fuller realization in the lives of individual Christians throughout the history of the church. To look into what they longed to do. It doesn't say that they did do it. What they longed to do, couldn't do. They longed to look into. This idea of looking into is to bend over or forward to examine more closely. This same word is used in Luke 24 and John 20 where those who recognized Jesus' absence peered into the tomb. They looked into the tomb with an effort to, to bend over and peer in and investigate what was going on. Angels longed to do that with the doctrine of salvation. Elect angels are in no need of redemption and therefore will never experience the immense joy of being plucked from those destined for an eternity of torment resulting from the depraved state into the joy of heaven. Elect angels know nothing of the experience of sin and therefore don't need to be redeemed from it and its consequences. And so Peter throws in this little tag, but it's very important, and I believe that it's important because it displays the magnificence of this salvation 
Angels performed a number of works. They ministered to Christ in Matthew 4 during his experience with temptation. They ministered to believers as recorded in Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Luke 15.10, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In Revelation 5, there's a lengthy expression of the work of the angels who continue to sing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. As you know, the angels announced the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 1. They longed to look into what you and I experience with the greatest fullness ever known to mankind, which will ultimately be completely revealed in its fullness in heaven to the degree that we can understand it. What then do you and I do with it? What is the call upon our lives? Let me tell you, there's no imperative in this text. There's no command. There's not a so that, like we saw last week with such great clarity. There's not a directive. What then is the obvious implied follow-up how do we practice what's being taught here what is the crucial truth that we would walk away with i would say we must wake up from our despondence i would say that if we have been granted by grace and grace alone the gift of salvation not by works lest any man should boast As the book of John has told us, Jesus himself says, everyone that the Father has given to me will come unto me. No one will come unto me unless the Father has given him unto me. I would say if that truth has any impact on our lives, that it must be the daily, moment-by-moment passion to share that truth with those who will hear it that we would be compelled increasingly to recognize the great value of this salvation, that God would have set three categories of messengers apart in this one very short text to proclaim its greatness. That we would understand it to the fullest measure possible, that we would study it, that we would know the gospel, that we wouldn't be caught off guard when someone says, hey, what is the gospel anyway? but that we would be ready to declare the singular truth, the exclusive truth by which man is saved, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would remember that apart from the gospel, no one can be saved, but that it would roll off our tongue not only with great ease, but with great fervor, and that as a result, people would know the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would have the privilege of ministering to them that we would have the great joy of feeding them the pure spiritual milk of the word of god that they might grow in grace they might grow in knowledge that we would not the moment someone comes to know christ have some strange and bizarre expectation that they should understand everything and act right and be nice but that we would be gracious and willing to acknowledge the reality that sometimes brand new believers are unkind because they don't know any better And that's the rhythm in their life that they've been in for so long. But that we ourselves who have had some awareness of for some appreciable period of time the impact and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it would bring us low. Rather than proclaiming, well, I'm one of God's children. You need to treat me better. That we would have a high self-esteem because somehow we're of the elect. That message is nothing but contrary to the mindset of the person who acknowledges that according to the foreknowledge of God, he has been chosen, he has been caused to be born again, that it would result in humility, a humble orthodoxy, a willingness to proclaim the truths of the Scripture with fear of God and not fear of man, and while fearing God and not fearing man, applying to him great gentleness and reverence. Peter tells us that later in chapter 3. That these things would be the passion of our hearts because we see the greatness of this salvation message delivered by these three categories of messengers. One, the Old Testament prophets who were in fact filled with the Spirit of God. The New Testament evangelist who also filled with the Spirit of God proclaimed truths for the purpose of people knowing Christ. 
and even the angels who long to look into what you and I experience on a daily basis if we're faithful to acknowledge it and look into it. But that we would do so not for our sake. Not for our sake. Not that we would be able to to give some count of how many baptisms we've had or make some proclamation of what the Lord is doing in our church that we somehow would be known in the community as a a church who's doing all kinds of work but that we would be known by our love for one another because we proclaim the gospel with clarity and with honesty and with integrity and with humility and that as a result people would look on and say okay that's different that's different May it be that we would value this message, that it would be a treasure to us, especially this time of year when it seems like there are more opportunities than usual. Father, thank you for the great message of salvation that you and your kindness have granted salvation to all those who will repent and believe in the gospel. We ask that you would continue to do a work in our hearts that might destroy any possibility of thinking high thoughts of self, a declaration that we somehow are more faithful or better or clearer or more effective, but that we first would acknowledge our own weaknesses, that we would declare with, with integrity and with honesty where we, we must be willing to be corrected. We must be willing to, to experience the joy of sanctification that comes from a, a daily meditation upon the gospel, what it is and how it changes how it is that you, by your grace, have extended the gospel to all those who would believe. Lord, we would ask that even now in this time that we have together of singing, that it would be a great declaration of the gospel, pleasing to your heart, that we would bless you. That we would bless you by declaring your greatness and your mercies, your grace, your kindness, your love that we would exalt the person of Jesus Christ and that we would experience the joy of doing that and the sadness of the details of difficult lives and that ultimately would result in the glory and the praise and the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we ask all these things for your glory. Amen.